<laughs> Background Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 and Matthew chapter 22 verse 32 was presented by Charlie Dewberry on August 7, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute, Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Ah, uh, well, good morning. Today I'm going to talk about one verse, and it's, as you probably know, the same in the New Testament and Old Testament. And on the surface, it looks like, what could we say about this? The verse is, I am the God your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Duh. I mean, what are we going to say about this? So, as I've been thinking about this, I wanted to back up and put Exodus here in a little bit of context. I'm going to make just some really brief comments. As I look at Genesis, arguably one of the main questions is, God gave Abraham some promises. By the end of Genesis, it doesn't look to me like those promises came to fruition. It doesn't look like to me that there's much that indicates those promises are close to coming to fruition. And there's some pieces there that are interesting, some developments that have some potential. But as I look at Genesis, I come to the end of it and say, man, we get to the end of Genesis, this generation's kind of dying off. And boy, they're not real close to having that, those promises fulfilled. I start Exodus, looking at Exodus then. The first few verses of Exodus are telling us, yep, the old generation died. So now we're starting with a new generation. What's happening here in Genesis? It seems to me that as you look at the book of Exodus, that God's decided to build a nation. Well, that's interesting, because if you're going to build a nation... That looks like it's got potential to fulfill some of those promises. It looks like that has the capacity of seeing a mechanism of how that can happen in human terms. But as somebody who has an interest in ecology, geography, history, those kinds of subjects, I look at this and I go, yeah, but if I'm building a nation... This ain't the place, and this isn't the culture I'm going to pick. Why? What do we have? We have a group of people here who are slaves, and interestingly, their host nation tells them to leave. Well, how many times has that happened in history? This is not a way I'd think about building a nation. To start out with a group of people that have been slaves, and they didn't whoop on the people enslaving them, but in fact, the host nation told them to leave. I mean, we know the circumstances of that, but that is interesting to me, looking at it from a historical perspective. The second thing that I would point to is geography. 
man, if I'm going to build a nation, a big nation, in the end, the most influential, important nation in the world, whose population is going to be more populous than dust, sand, whatever, man, I'm going to go for a river valley. I'm going for the Nile. I'm going for the Tigris-Euphrates. I'm going for the Yangtze. I'm going for some place you've got water because you've got to build a major agricultural foundation to build your culture. I'm not going to this wilderness, this desert. That looks to me like that if I'm going to build a nation, that's not how I'm going to build a nation to accomplish the goals of the covenant. Next, I'm going to look at the land that I'm given, and one of the things that's necessary if you're going to build a powerful culture is you need to have a lot of the metals of interest at that time in place. So you want a great agricultural foundation, you want lots of metals, you want a lot of trained individuals and skilled workers in metal, you want a strong military tradition. If I'm going to build a nation that's going to be powerful, long-lasting, and whatever, isn't those the kinds of things you'd be looking at? And I find it interesting that the situation we're presented here is virtually entirely the opposite. They don't have the advantages of any advantages of geography, of agriculture, of technology, of military training. They don't have those. So although we're going to build a nation, and that looks like this has potential of fulfilling this covenant, we actually look at it in human terms, and it doesn't really look like this idea of a nation has very much potential in this case. Anyway, just from my perspective, just some pieces to think about today. So let's come to our verse now. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It comes from Exodus 3 here. One thing I'd like to point out, at the end of chapter 2 in Exodus, there's a verse 24 referring to God hearing the groaning of his people, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that important here? Maybe, maybe not. That's one of the questions here. Is there a linkage between those two things? Secondly, now coming to Exodus 3, Moses is tending sheep with Jethro, his father-in-law. Anything significant about that? There's a history of how he happened to be there and why, but is that significant for understanding our verse? Okay, now verse 3, chapter 2. And then a messenger of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Okay, this is our word angelos, messenger. Often that's translated as angel in lots of places. This doesn't look like any angel that I normally am thinking about here. So what's the relationship here of this word angelos to this picture we have? seems to me that there are some issues to sort out there. Okay, so we have this burning bush, this bush that's on fire and not being consumed. Any specific significance exactly to that? So we have Moses out here tending sheep 
Look around, all of a sudden over here he sees a a fire in a bush that's not being consumed. Obviously, being a normal individual, I think he's going to investigate or at least take a look and see if he can somehow account for what he sees. And so when Moses does that, God called to him from within the bush. So now the bush is talking to him. Not only is it burning, not being consumed, but now the bush is talking. And the bush says, Moses, Moses. So not only is the bush burning, it's talking, but it's calling him by his name. Then Moses replies, here I am. I'm not sure that's what I would have said. (laughs) But is there any significance to what Moses says? And then God says, or sorry, the bush, excuse me. Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Okay, why is this here? What's the significance of that? Now, right here then is our verse. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, notice that here he said, I'm the God of your father. What's the significance of that being here as well as just the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Is that significant? What's at stake there by adding that? At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Why is that? Why is he afraid to look at God? And then the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So the Lord says this. Is there any connection? Well, what exactly is the connection with Moses here? If you recall the history, why is Moses out here herding sheep? And the answer is he was in Egypt, raised by basically the court, but he murdered an Egyptian who was abusing one of his kinsmen, and he fled because he thought he might get caught for it. Does that have any importance to what's going on here. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So, okay, he's going to rescue them from the Egyptians and take them out to this land flowing in milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So go now. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So there's the context for given here in our handout for today. So the immediate context, the larger context. Okay, so those are my introductory comments about Exodus. Now I want to go to the Matthew passage. In the first phrase, this is Matthew twenty-two, twenty-three to 33, starts out that same day. Same day as what? So obviously we should look at what was happening earlier in the day. What importance is that? What's going on in the day that's important here? So the same day the Sadducees, who said there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Okay, the Sadducees. Okay, it's telling us here the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection. In what sense 
do we understand that the Sadducees are saying no resurrection? None? Bodily? Spiritually? How are we going to understand this resurrection? Are they really saying there is no such thing as resurrection, period? What would the Sadducees have thought about that? Do we know anything about that? So anyway, and then is it significant? What's the significance of this phrase, who say there's no resurrection? What's the relevance of that to the question that they really ask? So their question, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children with her. Now there are seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Same thing happened, two through seven. Question, now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Okay, well, there's several things about this. One, we're told that in the first line, they don't believe in the resurrection. So now the question is asking, whose wife is she at the resurrection? So we got to sort out what's going on here. If they don't believe in the resurrection, why are they giving this example and saying at the resurrection? So we got to sort out what's going on there. What are the dynamics? Secondly, what answer are they expecting? What are the possible answers here? How is this relevant to any particular issue here? How are we going to connect that example with what's going on here? It seems to me that's a major question. And then Jesus comes back and says, you're in error because you don't know the scripture or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will never marry, nor will be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Okay, so Jesus is telling them they're in error because they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That's an answer to what question? What was the real question here? And then, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, here's our verse. But that's an answer, but to what? How is that answering anything going on in the dynamics here? Seems to me that's the question. And then, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. What about his teaching are the crowds astonished by? First time I read this, I went, what? I'm not getting this. How is this an answer to any question? So it seems to me that those are kind of some of the questions that are at stake here in the two verses. So with that. I suggest you read one more verse. Okay. Another question. Okay. I don't happen to have it open, so can you tell me what? Because I don't have it on the sheet. 34. Okay. Crowd was astonished, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, uh-huh. they gathered together. So the crowd was astonished, and the Sadducees had nothing to say. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, again, how come? What's the dynamics here? Why did that silence them? So, yeah, thank you. Okay, 